Well, good morning. You may be seated. It's a privilege to be here with you. And uh, my name is uh, Brent O'Neill, one of the missionaries here. And let's go straight to scripture as we read Psalm 46. It says this. I think I made a mistake. Let's stand for the reading of the scripture. (laughs) Here we go. It says this, God, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he, has become, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah and amen. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Some of you know your old liturgy. Good. Well, it's again, it is a privilege to be here. Um, You guys, uh, let me just say thank you. Uh, Right at the beginning, you've been a part of our ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew, I think for over eight or nine years uh, now. And it's been one of the privileges. Um, You guys actually called us to support our family in ministry, and I've told this story a lot, but it's the only time that's ever happened as a missionary, is someone has called us and said, can we support you in your mission? And so that has been, continues to be such a great encouragement to us. Uh, My wife, Lindsay, and I, we work underneath crew in a ministry called Lifelines. Some of you have heard about it as we've come and shared. Uh, Lifelines is all about using creation to reach college students around the, uh, the Northwest, specifically, with the gospel. So we, what we say is we like to take students in creation where God speaks in one ear, and then we speak in their other ear, proclaiming the creator who created creation. That, that creation is really a love letter to us that shares of God's love and compassion for us. And so every weekend, you can be praying for us during the school year, we take students in the outdoors and begin conversations about God, about the spiritual life, about leadership, uh, about community, and we do it in this unique environment where they can really hopefully have ears open to, to the good news that Jesus loves them. And so it's been our great privilege. I think we're six years. Uh, we live in Bend, Oregon. We've been there um, doing this ministry, but we have an exciting year coming up, and that's why we'd love to share with you in between services. Uh, it, it includes moving our family to Santiago, Chile for one year. And uh, so I'd love to fill you in on some of the details, but really the heart of what we're doing is in Santiago, there's three staff uh, with Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew, and they have to, their goal is to reach 380,000 college students in their city. There's no other college ministry that we know of, 
And they've said, if anyone is willing to come and help us, please come. And Lindsay and I have been praying about um, going overseas, taking our family overseas with us. And that call came and we said, I think God has prepared us and, and molded our hearts to be those people. And so we're leading a team to Santiago, Chile. Uh, in 52 days, I think we leave. <laughs> Not that we're counting. Just have a few things to do before we go, pack and sell a car and rent our house and, you know, minor details, find a house in Santiago, little things that we're trusting God. We're trying to be still and trust that God has those plans uh, in line for us. So that's a little bit who we are. Um, we have three kids, three boys. You might see them. They're going to come in the end of the service, and uh, my beautiful wife will be here soon, too. Um, we've enjoyed a great time being here all weekend, and I think this is our fourth or fifth visit, so it does feel like kind of coming home to be with you, and, and we've always appreciated the smiles and the encouragement as we've been here. So again, just want to thank you for your participation in the gospel, reaching students again around in the Northwest and around the world, and uh, we really appreciate you. Well, this week we're talking about Psalm 46, and, and I didn't know the pressure was on so much so that it's uh, inscribed in a rock as you come into the church. So no one told me that when I picked this psalm. They said you can pick any psalm. They didn't say it's on the rock inscribed. So hopefully I do a good job honoring that rock. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about this psalm, I thought, if anything else, and, and it's why I chose it, it's the psalm I need to hear. It's the psalm that the Lord needs to speak into my heart. And so he has been doing that over the past week or two as I've been thinking about this message. And so I hope some of those things will transfer over to you. But let me ask you a question. How many of you would say you're generally busy? Okay, I'm going to raise my hand pretty high. Okay, I'm there too. Um, how many of you have a list of things to do today? Okay, yeah, thanks for being honest. How many of you churches on that list? You got one box to check? Okay, went to church. Check that box. Good. You're almost there. You can't check it quite yet. On your way out, you can. Well, um, psychologists have come up with a new term that talks about the idea as Americans and Westerners that we are always in a hurry. We are always busy. It's not uncommon that I'll you know, walk up to a friend uh, at home and say, hey, how are you doing? What's their response? Oh, man, I'm doing great, but man, life is busy. Life is busy. And, and I know that well with three kids, three boys under the age of 10. They are busy, they're, <laughs> and they're making life busy. But the psychologists are now calling this hurry sickness. That In the West, we have a new sickness called hurry sickness. And so uh, London uh, Business School did a poll amongst managers of companies and they've, they've decided that 95% of managers in charge have hurry sickness. So here's the test. Five ways to know you have hurry sickness, okay? So think about your life. Number one, you are in a constant state of rush and worry. Okay, I've been there. Number two, you're constantly multitasking, right? That's not hard in today's day and age. Number three, you often drive fast or over the speed limit. Uh-oh, anyone? Okay. Number four, you don't like waiting in line or in traffic. Okay, I'm thinking you guys don't have a ton of traffic in Jacksonville. Wait, actually, the tourists have come, so you may. Uh, do you have hurry sickness? Number five, you can't relax or take a break. So if you ask my wife, she will tell you that is my main hurry sickness, is that I have a hard time stopping and slowing down. She's so great. She can relax, she can sit, have a coffee, I've got to get to my checklist. 
Uh, on vacation, my idea of a vacation is going to a place to explore. So on our honeymoon, we went to Hawaii. This is, I don't know, 12 years ago. And all I wanted to do is explore. And she said, no, 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 this is a vacation. We're supposed to sit in a chair by the pool, look at the ocean, and spend our day reading a book. And so right away in our marriage, we had a bit of tension. I won't, that's a different message that I'm still learning. Uh, but there is that tension, right? So we live in a culture full of hurry sickness. But yet here comes Psalm 46 down the train tracks, right? And it stops at our, our post, and we have to sit and think, what does this mean for us to be still and know that he is God? Well, I focused on that part of the psalm uh, in the past, and this, this last few weeks, I've really spent time in the first half of the psalm, and I've realized that I've missed something, that really to do Psalm 46.10, the famous passage, we actually have to go back to the first few verses, and I think that's what allows us, the things in there are what allow us to really sit and be still and know that He is God. So let's go back up in verse 1 and 2, and we're going to start where the psalm started. Okay, turn to verse 1 and 2. Okay, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So what I want to propose to you, in that short verse that God has presented in this psalm, two invitations and one reality check. Two invitations and one reality check. The first invitation is that God would be our refuge and strength. So literally, I looked that up, that word refuge means a place of trust. A place of trust, that you would live in his place, God's place of trust. So with our outdoor ministry, a lot of what we do is involved on the river, in particular river rafting. And so I have this dual, I, I wear a couple different hats, I'm a campus minister, campus pastor, and then I take off that hat and I put on my rafting guide hat, okay, and we take students down the river, and oftentimes, you know, at the beginning of the trip, because there's some rapids coming, right, and so we, we teach them, okay, when we say paddle, paddle forward, and usually I have a number, so I'll say forward two, and I'll say paddle two strokes, and then stop, Right? Okay, so inevitably what happens, two minutes after I've given that whole safety talk, this is how the whole thing works, I'll say, paddle two, and there's a big rock or a rapid coming up, right? And maybe I'm turned a little bit, because that's how you get through a rapid. You have to turn your boat. You can't always be facing forward in a river to navigate. You've got to go left and right. And so I'll say, paddle two, and after two strokes, what inevitably happens is those that are in fear will keep paddling, right? It's the worst nightmare for a guide, and then the opposite happens, right? When we're in the rapid, I say, okay, when I say paddle, even if it's scary, you paddle. But when the rapids come, paddles are out, people are hunkered down in, and they're afraid, and the paddling stops. So when I need them to paddle, they don't paddle. When I say stop paddling, they keep paddling. Well, that is true in life right here, is that, again, the definition literally means a place of trust. God wants to be our guide in life, right? And when he says don't paddle. Be still. Trust that I am God. He's, he wants you to put that paddle down and relax. He wants you to put that paddle down and trust in him. Find his place of, your place of trust in him. It really is telling in the raft, do they trust me as a guide? And the answer oftentimes at the beginning of a trip is no. Okay? Hopefully by the end of the trip, the answer is yes, as they've seen me to be faithful to get them through the rapids. 
But that's such a true metaphor of life. Then when, when life gets hard, what do we start doing? We start paddling. And we forget to ask the guide who's in the back of the boat, who's been down the river, right, who knows the river, who created the river of life, that he has a specific way that he wants to invite you to live life, and it's the best way. But yet, what do we do? We paddle when we're not supposed to. We work, we try, we, we put our faith in other things. So my question is, what tends to be your refuge when it's not Jesus, when it's not God? What tends to be the re- your refuge? Is it financial security? As long as I have my ducks in a row, things will be okay. God says he wants to be your financial security. Is it just order? Okay, I'm, I have this disease. I'm, I, I'm an OCD guy. My grass in the backyard has to be perfect. My wife laughs at me because I mow the lawn twice a week because I want it just right. I'm OCD, so I'm going to admit that. But the question is, do I trust in order instead of trusting in God, even when there's disorder, and he might invite some disorder in my life. Can I trust him in the midst of that? Is it vacation? Is it working for the weekend? Is your place of refuge something other than God? What tends to be your refuge? For us to rest in the power of God, he must be our ultimate refuge. He must be the place of trust. We have to trust him as the guide. Right? Okay, so invitation number one that he would be our refuge. Number two, and this one's, I hope it blows your mind, it says that he will be our ever-present help, a very present help in trouble. And if you look again, literally that means a help he has been found exceedingly. Okay, literally, if you go back in the Greek, a help he has been, actually it's not Greek here, but if you go back in the original language, he has been found exceedingly. Now realize this, okay, on Friday, we are coming over here from Ben, so we're going south, and, and uh, we have a fourth grader, so if you uh, have a fourth grader, all national parks are free for that year, if you didn't know that, someone tipped me off on that a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we have a fourth grader, and so we're like, well, Crater Lake is right on the way, so uh, we decided to travel down, visit Crater Lake for a couple hours, just as we're traveling through, and um, so we get up to it. We, I have actually never been there in the summer. I've been there in the winter a lot. We lead snowshoe trips there. Uh, it's beautiful in the winter, but we pulled up, and, you know, you park at Crater Lake um, just below the rim, so you can't actually see the lake, but then you walk up on it, and all of a sudden, it's just so incredibly beautiful. I, I, the water is so blue, this deep blue, and uh, so we really enjoyed our time, but my favorite part was my son, my youngest five-year-old, said, um, and he says this a lot, actually. He said, uh, how did this become here? How, why is this here? Uh, this is Jonah saying this. And, we, and I said, you know what? In creation, in Genesis, it says God spoke this into existence. With a word, God could create something like Crater Lake. Okay, I know it happened through a bunch of volcanoes and explosions, but God was in control of that with a word. And then my wife said, well, what are we supposed to do here? You kind of just drive up. There's not a lot of hiking or things to do. And I said, yeah, I think that's true. You just stop and you look because it's amazing. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon. You don't do a lot. You just are amazed. Okay, so take that picture because God created that with a word spoken from his mouth. And here he is saying that he is exceedingly wanting to be your help in life. He wants to be very present, exceedingly present in your life. This is the God who created Crater Lake in a word, and he wants to help you in your life. 
He wants to walk alongside you, give you direction, give you purpose, and give you a sense of his calling. That is amazing. I hope that, as I thought about that this week, it blew my mind that that God that created everything wants to walk alongside me and be exceedingly my help. Okay, it's kind of like I thought, you know, if Bill Gates called me and said, hey, would you, um, you know, just call me anytime you have a need. If there's anything on your mind, you know, financially, I've got some resources, just give me a call and uh, I'll take care of it. You know, as we go to Santiago, Chile, there's some financial needs and we're praying about it. But if Bill Gates said that, you know what I'd do? I'd get on the phone and I'd say, hey, you know, we could use a few things. But do we do that in our lives with God who has immeasurably more, right, than Bill Gates? We know that. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything, even everything Bill Gates has. And yet, do I call upon him and say, God, would you provide? Or instead, do I try to sweat it out myself? Do I try to worry and and take care of things myself? And so God is an ever-present. He's exceedingly wanting to be your help. Okay, that's the second invitation. Now, a reality check. It says, there will be trouble. <laughs> a very present help in trouble. Now, it'd be really nice if he just said he'd, he'd help us, you know, sort of in, on, on vacation. He'd help us because things are generally going to go good, well for you, right? But he says, there's going to be trouble, right? There's trouble in life. John 16, says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So that's the other half of the verse. But I would say we all need to hear this, and young people specifically, as I've worked with college students for 20 years, they need to know that the Christian message is not that life is going to be smooth, right, after you accept Jesus. Because guess what? Jesus' life, our model, was not smooth. He had a difficult life, and what's promised to us is trouble, but what's also promised to us is a help that is exceedingly present, in the process. God is a, is a God in the midst of trouble. Uh, my pastor back in, in Bend um, is famous for saying, where there are people, there, are, there is trouble, right? Where are there people, there are problems, right? So there are, there are troubles within, there are problems within marriage, within relationships, at work, and even, dare I say, there are problems at church, Okay, because we are people, we are broken, and church is a community of broken people. So don't expect church to be perfect, right? Don't expect relationships to be perfect, but trust in God to be an ever-present, exceedingly helpful uh, God in the process. Where there are people, there are problems. And if you don't feel like God is near, I hear this a lot with students, but I don't feel like God is near, this God that you're talking about that is present. Well, one thing I I tell young people a lot is that emotions don't authenticate truth. Emotions, so what you feel doesn't necessarily say that that thing is true. And, And again, we need to hear that because our culture is saying what you feel is the truth. Whatever you feel, you should follow because your gut is telling you to do certain things. Well, guess what? Our gut is broken and it tells us to do oftentimes the wrong thing. So what your feelings do not authenticate truth, but they do authenticate your understanding of truth. Okay, take that. They authenticate your understanding of truth. So if you feel like God is not near, then the problem is not that God is not near, it's that you don't understand how near God is. 
And so that's a process of understanding that. It's memorizing scripture. It's trusting in his promises. It's learning and experiencing the nature of God and that he's always the same and he's exceedingly wanting to be present in your life. So feelings don't authenticate truth, but they do authenticate your understanding of truth. And that applies to lots of different truths as you process through life. Okay, that's one verse. We're, we're going to keep moving. Verse, verse 2 and 3. Let's go there. It says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Therefore we will not fear. Back to the beginning. Therefore we will not fear. We will not fear is the invitation. We will not fear. So in... in uh, those olden days, the Jewish people, if you can think about your Bible uh, history, they didn't tend to live on the edge of the sea, right? They lived on the edge of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea, but not the Ocean Sea. And so the idea of the sea was very scary to those people. So when he talks about that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Remember, Jerusalem is outside of the coast. This is a, a great sense of fear that this is the worst thing that could happen. That was where the Leviathan lived. That was the abyss that's talked about in Scripture. But it says, we will not fear. What mountain is falling into the sea for you? What is that thing that is, that is causing you to fear, that is causing your heart to tremble? John Ortberg says that when our view of God is small, we become fearful. When my view of God is like that crater, lake, creation, God of creation, God of the universe, that God, that view of God, then all of a sudden fear begins to fall away. But if my view of God is small, then my view of man gets big. My fear of man can get big, right? And, and my fears can grow. So we need to have a, a strong, healthy view of a big God. Listen to what Ortberg says. I'm going to read you a quote here. It says, I strongly believe that the way we live life is a consequence of the size of our God. The problem that many of us have is not that our God is too small. We are not, is that our God is too small, excuse me. We are not convinced that we are absolutely safe in the hands of a fully competent, listen to this, all-knowing, ever-present God. When we live in a constant state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on us. Our mood is governed by our circumstances. We live in a universe that leaves us deeply vulnerable. Is that true of the world outside of us? I think it is. Is it true of the world inside the church? It can be in my life, right? So here it says, we have a chance to share our faith, but we shrink back. We, if, what if we're rejected or we don't have the right words? We can't be generous because our financial security depends on us. If someone gets mad at us or disapproves, We'll get all twisted up in knots. When human beings shrink God, they offer prayer without faith, work without passion, service without joy, suffering without hope. It results in fear, retreat, loss of vision, and failure to preserve. And I would also add, it, it reduces our impact on the world, right? When we're just as fearful as the world around us, even though we have a huge God, that's going to inhibit the impact we have on others. But as people see us trusting in a God that has all control, that's different than the world, right? So as we do that, people are going to take notice. 
But how do we live like this? Okay, so verse 4 and 5 are going to give us the answer. Again, we're starting at the top this time. It says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, which today, paraphrased, that is the church. He's talking about the community of God right here, that there's a river whose streams want to infuse the church. Okay, I'm going to keep reading verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. That's the God we want to picture. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, the God of history is our fortress. So how do we, how do we live like this is the question I think we're answering here. Uh, Matthew Henry says this, the river alludes to the grace and consolations of the Holy Spirit which flow through every part of the church, including the church members, gladdening the heart of every believer. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here, right? That God wants to infuse us with his power if we will accept it. Galatians 5.22 says this, hopefully a verse you know well, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That God wants to infuse our lives with his Holy Spirit and his power. Um, So I was on the Deschutes River last week, so lots of time again in the backcountry and the outdoors, leading a rafting trip. And there's something I noticed that uh, I probably noticed before, but I took note of because I was um, studying this passage, that on the Deschutes River, you got lots of different birds, right? And most of the birds um, flap their wings a lot, okay? So they're river birds, and so they're squawking and flapping their wings, and we saw a couple of them fighting. But then you have another set of birds, uh, primarily called the raptors, that include eagles, right, that don't have to flap their wings a lot. Instead, they soar, right? Because what are they doing? They are using the energy of the, of the wind, the currents, the warm currents in the air, and they get to soar. And so we saw a couple eagles high above the Deschutes River Canyon that were just steady. It was a real windy day, and they were just soaring. I don't know if they're hunting or if they're just enjoying life because they could, right? At that altitude, they were just soaring. And so I think that's a picture of how we can live life, that that God invites us to use the strength and power of his Holy Spirit to lift us up on wings like eagles, right, in Scripture, that we would soar. But I picture my life, and I want to say I'm more of a flapper (laughs) most of the time. I'm more like those birds on the side of the river, and I'm flapping away. And I just can picture what the God of heaven looking down from heaven is saying, Brent, you can soar. I've made you like an eagle, but here you are like a, like a common river bird flapping your wings. And guess what? The world is flapping its wings, and they need to look up and see somebody soaring. And the only way to do that is to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to be connected to that river of life, right? It's like John 15, that we would abide in Christ, that we would abide in the branch and back to the root that's going to the soil that comes back to the, the river that God has created through the Holy Spirit, that we would be men and women, church folks, that would soar because of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
How do we do that? We've got to depend on him. We've got to every morning. It's, it's, not, it's not hard, uh, but it's hard, right? It's simple in that we wake up and ask God, would you fill me with the Holy Spirit today? Would I say no to the things of this world, no to the things, the less of my heart, and would I say yes to you? And if we don't do that every day, our hearts automatically tend to turn to something else. Well, we're going to fast forward finally to verse 10. Uh, the sweet spot in this verse, it says, be still, and I know you know this, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob, our fortress. You know, what does being still do? Uh, I think it does a couple things in our lives. One, it addresses who we are. If we're still and we process life, we have to think inward and say, how am I doing? Who am I? How am I relating to God, myself, others? It forces us to really consider who we are. Uh, I've paraphrased it as I was um, spending time in this, in my devotions. I said, "I, I think I need to write that as be still and know that you are not God, right? It says, be still and know that I'm not, that I'm God, but I think I need to hear that I am not God. That it, those aren't my decisions to make, a lot of them. That those are his, and I need to call upon him and draw upon his strength. Be still and know that you are not God. You know, the other thing it does is it, it addresses the deep questions in our life. I don't know about you, it's really easy to avoid the deep questions in life if I'm just racing around. If I have that hurried sickness, I don't deal with growth issues in my life. But I need to stop. I want to grow. I, I don't want to be a stagnant Christian, right? I want to be different years down the road. But I need to stop and consider. I need to be still for that to happen. You know, I think it also keeps us from suffering and pain. Honestly, this is sort of my comment. Uh, you know, God, C.S. Lewis says God, or pain is God's megaphone in our life. Right? In good times, we tend to turn our ears off to God. And in hard times, then we go call on him. And, and he uses that in our life. But I wonder if we were just to be still a little bit more if God wouldn't have to use the megaphone of pain in our life quite as much, if we were listening in the good times, in the quieter times, in the busy times, if we would listen to him, that maybe pain would not be quite as evident. And finally, being still teaches us the gospel. Um, the North, uh, New American Standard Version says, uh, cease striving and know that I am God. And I love that translation. Cease striving. Be still. Cease striving. Well, the gospel is cease striving. God has done it for you. Stop trying to earn your way to heaven because Jesus has earned your way to heaven, right? Our world is striving, whether it's striving to be a better person or get to their idea of heaven or get to their idea of a spiritual reality where Christianity is 180 degrees different. It says, nope, you cannot strive enough to get to heaven. You cannot strive enough to know God. The only way you can know him is through his son, Jesus Christ, who has done the striving for you. That's a radical message. And and being still speaks to that, that we have to not only cease striving and come to know Jesus uh, as a new believer, but as an old believer, as a longtime believer, no matter how long you've walked with God, you need to cease striving and know that he is still God. He is still saving you. He still needs to come and rescue you, and it's on his shoulders. To me, that's so appealing, because I'm tired of striving. I don't know about you. Striving sounds terrible, and I do it a lot. So the invitation this morning, would you cease striving? Would you be still? Would you know that he is God, and you're not, and you don't have to be? 
He invites you to trust him to be that. Well, finally, it says, I will be exalted among the nations in the earth. You know, God's doing the work of evangelism. I've been a missionary now for 21 years, and my attention is to put that on my shoulders and say, I've got to be the guy that reaches students at Oregon State or University of Oregon or, or in Chile coming up this year. But guess what? I am not the guy. It's, it's God is going to make his name great among the nations, and I just get to participate. In fact, you are participating through us, with us, to go reach students, the students of the world. It's not on any of our shoulders. God is going to make his name great among the nations. Isn't that good news? For me as a missionary, that's great news. The pressure's off. The burden's not on my shoulders. It's on his, and he's going to do his work. One of my favorite stories is uh, the story of a group of, actually, it's a large group of pastors in China that have started what's called the Back to Jerusalem movement, okay? And so these pastors, so think about how the gospel, think about how Christianity moved, right? It started in Jerusalem and then generally tended to go west, right? And so over the years, it took over Europe and there was influence, North America, South America. We know in our history, Christianity had a great influence. And then over the last half a decade, China has been blowing up with the gospel, even though it's illegal, right? So when, when things are hard, God tends to uh, fire his flame, and, and people are coming to Christ in, I should call it East Asia, because it's a sensitive country for Christians. So in East Asia, uh, the gospel is doing amazing works. But these pastors have said, okay, now we have the baton, right? Thousands of years, here we are, we hold the gospel in our hands, it's our turn, and we're going to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. Okay, picture China and picture Jerusalem. What's in between? A pretty easy place to reach people with the gospel, with the Christianity. Nope. (laughs) It's the Middle East. It's a war-torn country. It's a place where people generally are against the idea of the gospel. Well, these pastors, these Chinese pastors say, no, it's all, we have the baton. History has given us the place where we're going to now take the gospel east, and we're going to the Middle East. Would you pray for those pastors, those church planners, those missionaries, those Chinese people that are doing what Americans at some level cannot do because of our skin color, because of our background, that we cannot go to some of those places, but they're trusting God. They're soaring like eagles with the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting God to do with something that only he can do because we know it says right here, I will be exalted among the nations. And I could tell you stories. There's incredible stories of what God's doing in the Middle East. God is showing up in, in dreams and in miracles in ways that he doesn't de- generally tend to show up here. But because of their faith and their background, Jesus is showing up in dreams and people are coming to Christ in the Middle East. You know, let's take time to be still. How do we do that? You know, my encouragement, and again, this is from someone who struggles with being still, is I need to take a walk more often and talk to God. Uh, we do a lot, a lot of prayer walks with crew. The first thing we're going to do when we show up in, in Santiago, Chile, is, is pray and walk. And uh, we've done this with students before. They're like, well, how do we, I got to close my eyes to pray. How are we going to walk and pray? And so you can pray and walk at the same time. Keep your eyes open. That's the first thing I tell them. Uh, But we need to spend a lot more time walking and praying. Let's walk around the places where we work and pray for those people that are inside working. Let's walk around our grocery stores and pray for those people working in the grocery stores. Let's walk around our city and pray for our city and our town. 
Uh, I have a good pa- friend, pastor, that lives in my neighborhood, and, and we walk around our neighborhood, and we just pray. All those people we've gotten to know, we each have a list in our phone, all their names, and we're praying for them. Okay, so be insiders and pray for your neighbors. Pray on your knees. When's the last time you've prayed on your knees? When's the last time you've had a posture deeply in prayer that that would create a, a place of stillness in your life? Take a day with the Lord. One of the things I really love about our organization crew is we are mandated to take one day every month and just spend it with the Lord. Now, we don't always follow it, and I'll be the first to admit it, but we are encouraged and have the freedom, and we're actually mandated to take a day with the Lord, and God speaks when we give extended time for him to speak. I have a good friend that every year he takes just a personal retreat for three or four days, and he said, I'm just going to go spend time with the Lord and listen to him. Every year he has something to tell me about his experience with God, and it's always significant. You know, in heaven you will never be condemned for not being busy enough. When you get to heaven, God is not going to say, I wish you were just a little busier. That would have made such an impact. He's probably going to say, you know, you could have just been still and trusted in me. And what a great invitation for us today. What a great invitation for us as Americans, for our culture, that we would just be still and know that he is God. Would you take him up on his offer to be a refuge and a great help? So let's pray this morning. Dear Jesus, thank you that you are an inviter. You continue to invite us into your presence. God, so often we walk away from you, we we. Uh, do our own thing, we work hard, we strive, we try, all the while you're just inviting us to be in your presence and rest in your power. God, would you remind uh, us of that this week as you have been with me this last few weeks, that we would not strive, but we trust in your power. God, you're so good that the creator of this universe, of this earth, you want to be involved in our lives and you want to be our ever-present help. God, we thank you in your name we pray. Amen.